Okay. Hello, I am Nicholas Patrick, partner in the pro bono and responsible business team at DLA Piper in London. And thanks for joining me this morning for this conversation with four pro bono partners, all of them recently promoted into these roles over the past 12 months. Uh, so we have uh, Kerry Stairs from Charles Russell Speechley, Yasmin Walji from Hogan Lovells, Brooke Massender from Herbert Smith Freehills, and Claire Dodds from DLA Piper. So welcome to all of you. Thank you. Hi, Nick. Um, now, last year, uh, February 2020, uh, I published a report with the Thomson Reuters Foundation, the Pro Bono Institute, uh, and the Australian Pro Bono Centre on the nature and prevalence of pro bono partner roles globally. Uh, and this conversation really is an opportunity to further explore some of the findings in that report. Uh, but I thought it would be useful just to start off uh, by talking a little bit about what a pro bono partner is. Uh, and Brooke, since uh, you have been in your role for just about a year now, I thought perhaps you know, you could start by just giving a bit of a quick overview of what the role of pro bono partner entails. Sure. Um, in terms of my own role, I'm the global head of pro bono, Herbert Smith Freehills. So that effectively is a mandate to manage the pro bono practice across our 26 global offices. Um, what that means and what that looks like in real terms really changes every single day. Um, as I think the other partners on the call would recognise, it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. So what our different clients in different regions need um, is vastly diverse and equally the stage that some of our offices are at in terms of their pro bono evolution and pro bono journey is incredibly diverse. So if I, I guess if I was to try and divide the role into buckets in terms of what I actually do, I think it sort of probably falls into... Um, a combination of supervisory work with an incredibly talented team of senior lawyers who are delivering our pro bono partnerships and services in those different regions. The client facing piece, so my background is with a specialism in um, rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, so trying to push the dial on some of the key issues of the day around constitutional reform and Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, probably the slightly more mundane management aspect of the role, everything from HR aspects to budget management aspects, comms. Um, and then I think probably the, the, the bit that, that engages me the most, the sort of strategy and the thought leadership piece and what is it that we're actually trying to do? What is the change that we want to see in the world as opposed to those sort of um, more internal facing metrics that we might have from our organisations? And you said that, uh, I think you said that different countries or different offices were at different stages of the of their journey or of the development of the pro bono practice. Does that imply perhaps that uh, your part of the kind of business case for your promotion is about growing pro bono in, in some parts of the world? Um, definitely in the sense that we would we would want to have a consistent commitment and we're thinking quite carefully about what it means to have a global practice as opposed to having a series of regional practices um, and whether or not we conclude that is one and the same thing is very much a work in progress but the idea that we need a degree of consistency and coherence in what we mean by pro bono how we um, define success 
of a pro bono practice, which, as I alluded to earlier, is um, very much by external factors and metrics rather than internal factors or, or hours and, and quantitative assessments. Um, I guess getting those ingredients to be consistent across our global network. So we're speaking the same language when we talk about pro bono and, and we are trying to achieve a consistency of approach and impact. Fantastic. Um, well, I want to come to you, uh, Yasmin, because um, it's, it's wonderful, I think, uh, to see that London headquartered firms uh, are now starting to promote pro bono partners. Uh, we're still a rare breed, I think, in Europe. Um, and so perhaps, you know, if we could start on that point, um, could you reflect for us on, on why, you know, of the 66 uh, pro bono partners that we found in the report last year, only one of them was in Europe? And, and what is it about this past year that has seen that number quadruple? Thank you, Nick. It's a real pleasure to be here and thank you for arranging this. Um, I think the development of pro bono in Europe has been slow and consistent, but it is really a really welcome development to see the investment by international global law firms headquartered in London investing in pro bono partners now and really recognizing the value and the complexity of the work that Brooke described and the fact that there has to be leadership on this. Um, it isn't something that can be just done ad hoc, particularly at a global international level. It needs investment. It needs to be properly managed. And I don't think any law firm that aspires to deliver an impactful pro bono program can do so without it being partner-led. And I think that recognition has come um, now because there is this real understanding that we need to demonstrate as a profession that we are committed to society, that we want to drive forward change, and we are part of a solution around delivering access to justice that's expected of us as part of our license to operate. And I feel strongly that actually it needed an investment initially by one major law firm, for example, Hogan Lovells, DLA, to really push that forward and drive it home to the rest of the profession. You need those leadership roles. I'm very pleased that Hogan Lovells took that, that leadership role and the other firms around this table, um, because we have to set the trend going forward that we will not deliver an impactful practice without that kind of investment. Um, I also think that the eyes of the world are upon the Western European practices to actually deliver on those promises and those aspirations. Um, and the graduate recruitment market, the client market is expecting that too. I also think that it, in honesty, it's about um, ensuring that risk is properly managed within a law firm. We are increasingly taking on difficult, challenging issues and they need partner level supervision in order to actually drive an impact and manage those teams properly. I remember having a conversation with you about a year ago where uh, you made the point that uh, you know, pro bono clients are in, in many respects less sophisticated consumers of legal services than our commercial clients. You know, we often have a lawyer as a client when we're acting for big corporations, uh, but 
when we're acting for pro bono clients, uh, the, the client doesn't understand the law well, and we therefore almost owe a, an even greater duty of care to that client. I love that. I love that point. Absolutely. I mean, many of the individuals that we're dealing with are vulnerable. We have duties of care towards them that are higher. And, and we need to ensure that we explain and are there to support those clients um, to understand the implications of what they're doing and to protect them from the environment in which they find themselves, which is very unfamiliar. And many of our colleague partners may not have that familiarity of the vulnerability of the clients and exposure of the issues that they're facing. I'm sure my colleagues on the call will feel the same, that we provide almost an interface between civil society and the mainstream firm. And, and that's a very sensitive, very delicate role to do well but it's an incredibly high profile wrong. You get it wrong and there could be implications around that um, for profile and for the individuals, of course, themselves. So I think it's an incredibly important role to have and to make sure that that sensitivity is part of the overall partnership of the firm. And what, what uh, was there anything uh, in particular that you could share, any insights that you could share in relation to the kind of the, the, the business case uh, for your promotion to partner or uh, what was it that ha happened this year that, uh, that just made, made the firm uh, decide that this was the moment to, to promote a pro bono partner? I, th I think we've been quite quiet about the scale and, and the impact that we were having, but also the, the risk issues around that. Well, I've been happily managing those over many periods, and I'm sure we all have colleagues who are at senior associate level council level within pro bono practices. They, they take this in their stride, but actually it is a very sensitive area. This year we have, um, in this last year, we were undertaking all the terrorism inquests um, that had happened in the United States, in the United Kingdom. Um, and we're currently um, handling the Manchester Arena bombing inquest. You know, those kinds of issues, when we're dealing with the vulnerability of people, I think it, it becomes very apparent that it needs to, there needs to be a proper management of the practice. We've got 80 odd trafficking cases, international and national. Um, when you when you start to describe the scale and actually make that aware in people in where internally of of the management role that you're playing i think that suddenly concentrates mind we then have the external environment which is saying come on law firms we need to demonstrate to our stakeholders that we are being part of the solution of access to justice we're making sure that our we're building client relationships through our work and we're also accountable to civil society for the position mm. that we hold. Yeah. So I think those two things, both an internal and an external dimension came together and, and a recognition that the program wouldn't work without proper management. Mm. Well, I think it's fantastic. And I hope, uh, I hope other firms follow the example that Hogan Lovells. Um, and on that, that, Nick, I think it's, it's incredibly important that as, a, as global law firms who want to demonstrate their global impact, it is impossible to do this without the investment in a pro bono partner. And I want to try and get that across. I'm sure everyone on the call would feel the same way. Is it, it, 
it's not living the values if you do not put that investment in. It's interesting because um, if I think back to, you know, one of the findings of the report, uh, obviously the, all of the pro bono partners that were interviewed as part of that report all said that having the title of partner made, it, made them more effective in their role. Um, and, you know, those are the only people who really have got that kind of lived experience of doing the job as a partner versus as a, an associate or a legal director. Um, but I still so often, you know, when I talk to colleagues uh, who are in discussions about promotion, you know, the managing partner has said to them, well, everything is great, so why do we need to change it? Um, and I think there's a bit of scepticism about whether or not the change in title really will, will change the role. Um, but I can certainly say from, from my experience, having been a partner for more than 10 years now, it really does transform your capacity to effectively deliver uh, for the firm. Can I just pick up on that, Nick, and, of course, and on Yasmin's point around the fact that there's a lot of incredibly skilled and experienced people who have been plugging away doing these jobs really well for a really long time. I think sometimes, particularly in very large global firms, um, it's hard to get an a, a attention for an issue unless it's a burning platform. And frankly, mm. sometimes we've been our own worst enemies in doing a great job for so long that nothing's broken. And so there's no perception that anything needs to be fixed. Mm. Um, and so, and I'm not suggesting that people would want or need to create burning platforms, but what Yasmin said about the risk issue um, really resonates with me because that was, yeah. that was a very strong part of the conversation that I had over a year ago. And to your point on, you know, what changed on 1 May last year, everything and nothing simultaneously. And I had completely underestimated the change because I had made a naive assumption that it, I was already doing the job and it would just be, a, you know, some of the recognition that I had been um, seeking internally and externally. The reality was I hadn't realized how many conversations I wasn't already a part of that made my job so much considerably easier in terms of just standard business intelligence, utilization, mm. who's busy, which clients are moving in and out um, of the frame. And to have that information at your fingertips, as opposed to be hunting for it proactively on a daily basis in your organization is night and day from a practical perspective. Yeah, that's so true. Um, well, I'd like to go to Kerry next. Um, and Kerry, Congratulations on your pr promotion to to partner uh, this you. year. Um, I think um, your promotion is is kind of an interesting one because I think um, you know whereas Yasmin, I think has been in her role since about 1997, <laughs> um, and is just an institution in uh, the pro bono scene. In London, uh, Charles Russell Speechley's and 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 uh, your role there is is much newer, and I think um, you know this is a firm that obviously wants to make a splash in this area and is uh, making a big investment um, up front, and I think that's terrific. So, could you talk a little bit about 
the firm and its ambitions and and you know how this uh how your appointment came about yes with pleasure um i yeah i'm conscious that i am a relative newbie in the in the pro bono world um certainly compared to to yasmin um so i guess the first thing to say is that my role as partner at, at crs is a responsible business mandate so it has two big buckets of of work the first is working with senior management and with people from across the business to better understand and improve the firm's social and environmental impact as a whole. And an enormous part of that is the, is the management and oversight of the pro bono practice. And I just wanted to pause there to say that there was throughout the, the promotion process a recognition from the partners that the job of managing a pro bono practice should be done by a pro bono partner. And all of the points that that Yasmin and Brooke have made about risk management and the importance where you have such a substantial practice um, and a practice that is disproportionately uh, representing vulnerable people who need more care and more attention, more sensitivity. Um, that is particularly important that it be managed by a partner. So that was a fundamental part of the business case, albeit that the, the mandate is a broader one, looking at our social and environmental impact as a whole. And then the second bucket of work is a bit more client-facing, so supporting the firm to identify where our clients need support on environmental, social and governance or ESG issues and making sure that we've got the right capacity and we're making the right connections to do that. Um, so that's the role. Um, and I was it's been a bit of a whirlwind. I was promoted on the 1st of May and it's incredibly intense um, as I'm sure Claire <laughs> will agree with in the run-up to that. So this is the first time I've had to sit and reflect on, on how it all came about. And I think there are probably three main things that happened. The, the first is that I came into a firm that is, it sounds a little corny, but it's, it's a smaller firm. It's still a large international firm, but it's, it's a size where you can actually get to know most of the partners. Um, and I would say I came into a business that is genuinely impact conscious and, and values driven. And that's a that's a handy backdrop <laughs> against which to try and get a business case for responsible business off the ground. Um, the second, I would say, is the leadership. So I was the managing partners candidate, which is helpful. But my business case was also endorsed by our senior partners. So we've just had a change of senior partner and the outgoing senior partner was a huge champion as is the incoming senior partner. So to have that real leadership backing, to have people right at the top of the firm who stand squarely behind responsible business, both from a values perspective and a commercial perspective, was incredibly helpful, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> um, and third, and this again is echoing some of the points that have already been made, um, this has been an extraordinary year. I mean, there's been this growing focus on, on businesses as social actors, and we've all seen that happening over uh, recent years, but this last year has, has really thrown into sharp focus the responsibility and the role that businesses play for, for good or for bad in the lives of, of people, ordinary people and society as a whole. And there was a real, it, it was almost as if something this year really clicked. It became clear that not only was, were we under scrutiny, but that our clients were under scrutiny as businesses, that they need us to make this type of investment and to make this kind of commitment. Um, the point about recruiting talent has already been made 
as well. We, we, we're increasingly being looked at by the best talent out there. And they are asking, is this the type of business that I want to work for? And all of those things, I think, went into the mix this year. It has been gradual building over years, but th this has been a year like no other. And I think that really made a difference. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was uh, one of the one of the findings of the report that kind of stands out in my mind um, is the need for the managing partner to be supportive. And I know, you know, many of the pro bono partners that we spoke to when we were preparing that report said you could have 100 percent of the rest of the partnership behind you or against you. Um, but if the managing partner is not supportive, it doesn't tend to happen. And so for a lot of people, they kind of identified having the support of that key person as being essential uh, to their promotion. So your experience, I think, reflects the experience of, of virtually every other uh, person who's been promoted into a pro bono partner role. It's, now, it's that, Nick, and also it, pro bono being part of the strategic plan of the firm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there's a, it's that business case of making sure that Hogan Lovells has now put pro bono um, responsible business as one of the five strategic business plan points for the entire firm. And I think then having the leadership role and the support of the senior partner is important. But I think the two have to go together. Yeah, I, yeah. That's quite I agree. I think, um, I think in some firms, pro bono is still seen almost as pulling against the strategy of the firm by a lot of people. You know, if we're doing that, then we're not doing this. And so they're often seen as kind of competing uh, priorities, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for kind of strategic alignment. And uh, if, if, if pro bono lawyers can do their, their jobs really well, I think the, the strategic alignment um, is, is really achievable and as you say, essential. Now I wanna bring Claire in because um, uh, Claire and I have been working together for a long time and Claire tells this, this story, which I, I, I'm not really 100% sure that it's true, but the, she says the first time I got her to do pro bono work, I invited her for lunch on a Friday and I took her to a homeless shelter where there was a legal advice clinic happening and sat her in the corner of the room at a card table to give advice to uh, homeless people in, in Newtown. I have no recollection of that. Uh, but <laughs> um, that is one of the, the core skills of a pro bono lawyer as well, isn't it? Um, and um, so, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's where we both started um, in terms of our pro bono careers. But I think uh, our pro bono practice has evolved enormously over the past decade. So it'd be great if you could give a sense of the kind of size and scale of, of the work that uh, that you're leading. Sure, yeah. Um, so absolutely, I mean, it has changed enormously in the past 10 years. Um, a lot of the work that I do it involves working with governments in post-conflict and least developed countries. The first, I think, significant matter for me was a project working on the government with the government of East Timor. At that time, Timor was the second newest country in the world, having recently emerged as an independent state. And I led a team of lawyers um, from across our global firm, working with very senior members of the government on an economic reform project. The project was designed to move the country from an aid-led economy to a private sector-led economy by creating incentives for foreign direct investment. It was a huge undertaking, 
but it was also really a light bulb moment for me. It was then that I realized that by using the skills of commercial lawyers and by taking on these really large ambitious projects, we could have an impact on the lives of so many people by helping to create jobs and economic opportunities. So since then, we've worked on law reform projects around the world. We've supported the development of legislation on a wide range of topics, including the treatment of children, transitional justice, treaty accession, and public procurement. We also do a lot of capacity building work. So training lawyers, government officials, law graduates. This work not only helps to enhance their skills, but is also a form of empowerment. I remember training a, a group of government lawyers in an African country on negotiations prior to COVID. Um, we did a simulated negotiation in which one party appeared to have much more power, or all of the power really in the negotiation. Um, at the end of the negotiation, we everybody revealed the agreements that they had reached and both sides then revealed their secret facts. And there were gasps of horror across the room as everybody realized that there were weaknesses on both sides. And a number of these government lawyers said to me, look, we always assume that as an African government, we have no power and that we have to accept the terms of what we're actually being offered. And they said to me, look, this has completely changed our outlook. It's they, we, I'm going to give much more careful consideration moving forward to the respective strengths and weaknesses on both sides. And I think that really kind of brings us back to our, our core purpose as lawyers, which is representing others or in, in these lawyers case, their country and building economic prosperity, transparency and, and good governance. And I think that it's really important that a pro bono practice has both of those elements of acting for individuals, of working out what the issues being faced by the community are, but also trying to take it up to um, the level of looking at broader groups of people and trying to empower everybody across the board. And, and do you think the fact that kind of pro bono work has become more, more complex, more strategic, more systemic, uh, I think there's a, a, we're engaging with a much broader range of stakeholders every day. Do you think that's part, was that part of the business case for your promotion? Did people, were people uh, interested to understand what like the pro bono practice looked like and were they surprised to kind of understand the complexity of some of the work that's being done? Absolutely, absolutely. I think, um, as, as Brooke alluded to, it, it depends upon the different jurisdictions that we're working in, how much people understand um, the scale of the pro bono practice, but also the type of work that we actually do. Um, in, in some countries, there was a perception that we very much act for refugees and we are assisting people um, at a very individual level. Um, and for those people, it was a real revelation that we are doing this nation building type of work. And there was also a big recognition to um, Yasmin's point around the meshing of the pro bono practice with our overall strategy that this is actually something that can create um, shared value for the firm. The work that we're doing is something that helps us to build brand, to build reputation, to build credentials and um, trains people up in new areas of law. It can be very, very high profile work. And I think there was not necessarily a broad recognition of that um, across the firm. So absolutely, it was part of the business case. Fantastic. And so I, I thought what I would do now is just open up just to see uh, what advice you all might give to 
experienced pro bono lawyers who are at the stage of their career, perhaps where they are exploring the idea of partnership um, with law firm management. And, you know, what, what uh, tips uh, would you give to those people? Because I think for a lot of people, it feels uh, something that's completely unattainable. Um, and there are some very senior pro bono lawyers who really uh, have just said, oh, this would never happen at, at my firm. Um, and I think we've probably all felt like that um, uh, at times. And so um, what advice can you offer? Can I start off Nick, by suggesting that the best thing that you can do is articulate the aspiration because mm. people aren't going to guess um, and you can't build that um, body of senior support that you're going to need or, or even the sort of personal support that you need around you to do a, a partnership progression journey unless you, you sort of admit to yourself and the people around you that that's something that you're actually aiming for. Um, mm. It was a fairly long journey for me. And one of the things that I had to contemplate along the way was what are my motivations? Why do I want this and how badly do I want it? Do I want it so badly I would go to another firm and run another practice? Or actually is the practice that I want to lead the one that I'm in? And even if it is a much longer road, that's the road that I want to travel were, mm. were conversations that I had to have with myself. Um, I think, a turning point for me was an understanding that when you have a really viable plan B, you can push plan A so much harder and with so much courage and, and be a bit more fearless. So I, I yeah. had to sort of sit and contemplate what my career would look like if I wasn't going to be made a partner at Herbert Smith Free Hills and be really comfortable with that as a, as a career trajectory for me to then say, okay, that's the worst case scenario. Let's push on for plan A. And I think that freed me up a lot. I agree. I think having the confidence to, to uh, kind of speak up for yourself um, and advocate for yourself is hugely important. I think we're all very good at advocating for others, but often not so good at advocating for ourselves. Um, and yeah, again, if I think back to the report, there was only one example there of a person who really didn't have to advocate for herself and, that was Michelle Hannon and she's at Gilbert and Tobin and she told me that she was just in her office one one day working and the phone rang and it was the managing partner and he told her that he was making her a partner um but you know there is only one Danny Gilbert in the world <laughs> so it would be great if uh, if that happened more often but I think uh I think people do have to advocate for themselves and I I want to uh, I, you know, obviously the four of you are all newly promoted female partners, and this is a sector, uh, I think, heavily dominated by women, at least in the London market. Most, the vast majority of pro bono lawyers are women, and I wonder whether there's a gender dynamic uh, at play here. Yasmin, would you like to comment on that? <laughs> I definitely think there is the gender dynamic. I think it, it ties into the um, conversation that Brooks just have about making sure we articulate our ambition to be a partner. And I think there's a, we get on, we do the job in the way that women do and don't necessarily realise that other people haven't noticed how well we're doing. 
So, and that's from an internal and external perspective. I think it's important to talk to people internally, other partners about building alliances across the firm, but then also building your profile externally, because I think there's nothing better than third party recognition and endorsement for what you're doing. It, it's almost more impressive that your clients and the, the maybe the, the country um, ministers or junior ministers talking to their counterparts in the law firm saying, Claire is fantastic, Kerry's fantastic. That tends to concentrate the mind slightly as well as your articulation. But I think as women, we're not very good at doing that. And I, I just a little bit of historical perspective. I'm, I've been doing some work looking at the first hundred years. Um, and in the United Kingdom, the, the first woman to try and apply for uh, law society recognition was in 1879. So it's been 143 years in the United Kingdom since we've got a pro female pro bono partner. So we need to try harder. You know, there's there is this historical perspective that we're we're you know advocating against. In in fact, but I'm sure mm. my colleagues have other views on it too. Claire, Kerry. I don't, I don't know that I have a view on the gender question specifically. Um, I'm perhaps a little bit too new to the pro bono market, having only been back in private practice for a little over two years. I wonder whether, when I think about the role that I applied for at Charles Russell Speechley's uh, two and a bit years ago, which was a, the role of pro bono legal director, that was originally advertised as a part-time role. And I... I went to interview for that role and convinced them that, in fact, it was more than a full-time job. Um, but I do wonder if that plays into it as well. I've seen a, a number of pro bono roles are structured as part-time roles, and we know that women um, are more likely to work part-time, and perhaps there's that ties into the long, hard struggle to partnership, because I think that, that is a struggle for people that work flexibly anyway. It's becoming better, but um, it, it has traditionally been harder to make the case for partnership working part-time. Mm. Um, I think, I mean, it, it, internal advocacy is a point that Yasmin just made really strongly. It, it's absolutely right that you've got to, uh, unless you're the exception that you mentioned, you've got to identify yourself as someone that, that aspires to partnership. And then there is an enormous job of internal advocacy to do. So even if you are backed by the leadership of the firm, um, you, you've got to persuade all of the other owners of the business <laughs> That, um, that that you that your business case is strong and that you deserve to be a partner and I think it's really easy in a pro bono role or I found it easy in a pro bono role to spend all of my time engaging with people that naturally supported my business case mm. um, they gravitate towards you you gravitate towards them you can do an excellent job as a senior pro bono uh, leader without ever engaging with people that do not buy into pro bono and do not buy into your business case, or not even the people who don't buy in, people just who are not naturally um, natural supporters of that. And, and the I think that's enormously important and enormously insightful, actually, and to, that's to find thing. supporters amongst people who are not necessarily obvious supporters um, yeah, is and, very, and, very powerful. And that's the difference between a, an ordinary promotion in a, in a, in, in a corporate role and aspiring to partnership you you have to go out and engage with owners of a business that are not necessarily your natural supporters and convince them that this is something that they should invest in and that ta and that takes time that's a that's a mm. that can be a bit of a slog um 
I, I want to come back to uh, something that you said earlier, Kerry. You said that uh, ESG was a big part of your business case, and I'm wondering whether that was true for any of the other any of the others, because um, you know I think the ESG agenda has uh, got so much velocity at the moment, um, and um, it's it's high on the I think ESG risks and opportunities are just high on the agenda for, for, for all of our businesses and all of our clients. And so maybe, Claire, if you could reflect on whether it was relevant to your business case, your promotion. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Absolutely. In my case, yes, it was. I mean, we have a pro bono practice to allow us to be part of and to give back to the communities and also to help meet and set stakeholder expectations so that is you know the expectations of our clients of the community of the regulators and and our people across the firm i think that the esg agenda has really brought into focus the purpose of business and forced businesses to think about their contribution beyond profit um, and in the case of law firms we're uniquely placed to use our legal skills to help address some of the key challenges faced by vulnerable people and under-resourced communities we can you know, take on cases, collect evidence and advocate on issues in, in a way that um, others can't. You know, for example, um, we could um, change the way in which decisions on welfare benefits are being made, leading to revision of guidelines and creating a better system. We can help governments in underserved regions obtain access mm -hmm. to climate finance and you know, participate in, in international forums like the UNFCCC. That not only helps to illustrate and underline what our purpose is as a business, but it also boosts our own ESG credentials, um, where we can show that we're using our core business to have a positive impact on the world around us. And that really gives us credibility in order to help our clients in that space. Yasmin? I also think that we have a specialist knowledge that is incredibly useful in this um, movement we we sit at the at the intersection between civil society business and the corporate world and we have for 20 odd years more than that been bringing these different stakeholder groups together to deliver an impact that's what ESG is about ultimately mm -hmm. it's about making sure that we as a business um, fulfill that function in society but there are very few people in a firm that can do that. And I would say the only person that can do that is the pro bono partner. But in order for them to do it well, they need to have the elevated position of partner to bring the decision makers to the table. Otherwise, they're going to miss out on the opportunities that ESG presents. Um, you, because ultimately, I found that lawyers from the infrastructure practice or other other specialist groups perhaps don't have one of those familiarities either of government or civil society to be able to bring that play that convening role that we can mm. i think that's incredibly important and and that's what we should be advocating and younger lawyers who are aspiring to be partners that's that's their very particular expertise yes I think I the, other, the other feature of the esg movement that was um important I think is that if you think about ESG at its core is the idea that sustainability and profitability go hand in hand so that an investment in having a strong set of ESG credentials is value additive 
And I found that quite, getting that point across and people realising that through talking to their clients and understanding that when their clients are investing in this, it was for the good of the business and the bottom line. It was easier for me to make the point that that's exactly the same for us as a law firm. It's not pro bono, corporate philanthropy, whatever aspect of the things that we give away is is not giving away, it's not, it's not a nice to have, it's not something we give away. It's an investment that will come back to benefit the business for the long term. And that's, that shift, I think, I think people articulated that idea, but this year it's felt as if that shift is really understood and felt, and that made all the difference, I think, in, in pushing for partnership this year. Mm. It's interesting because <clears throat> when, uh, when I interviewed all of the pro bono partners uh, who were in their roles back in 2019, nobody talked about ESG. Um, and yet uh, the three of you have, have talked about it. And Brooke, was it, was it relevant to your promotion last year? Or is this the first year that ESG has been part of the conversation? I think there is a distinction to be drawn uh, this year because it certainly wasn't an explicit part of my business case, but it, as um, my colleagues have already articulated so well, it's been part of the external context that has mm. opened some eyes and minds uh, and dare I say, possibly even some hearts um, to, to perhaps see some of the things that have been happening for a really long time that do bring extraordinary levels of value not just to society but but to the organizations that that we sort of operate within um i, I was struck in the the earlier conversation about gender and one of the things that um that i wondered when kerry was talking about you know is it because perhaps some of our colleagues have worked part-time perhaps one of the factors is that our colleagues have been managing massive practices on their own in a way that not many other partner candidates in a firm would contemplate. And certainly one of the things that came to light during the process for me was that I wasn't just unusual because I was a pro bono practitioner, but I was unusual because I had an existing leadership and management role and suite of responsibilities that typically an SA going for partnership hasn't had and will then need to grow into. Um, so I think, you know, just to echo particularly Yasmin's point about that unique role that we play, I think that is what is being seen now. It's not a new role. Um, it's just that it's it's in sharper focus than ever. The work the workload is absolutely enormous. And, you know, in conversations that we had at DLA, I remember saying to some of our, our leaders, look, you know, the, the notional value of this practice is about 70 million. And if this was any other practice group, you'd be insisting that we promote several additional partners to look after this practice. So, so you know, I think people uh, do underestimate the, the workload that's involved. Um, and, you know, the, the pro bono, all of the pro bono lawyers that I know are amongst the hardest working uh, lawyers in their firms or in the profession. And so the idea that, you know, and I think that this still exists, that this is a, this is, these are roles for people who decided to kind of take a step back from uh, a busy commercial practice and have more work-life balance is, is <laughs> everybody's laughing. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think that, that, is, that perception is still out there. 
Um, but look, on, on that note, I think uh, what I want to do is wrap up because I just want to uh, take the last minute or so to really to recognise the leadership that has been shown by HSF, uh, by Charles Russell Speechley's, by Hogan Lovells, and um, also by by DLA. Um, I think it's a fantastic thing that uh, the four of you have been promoted to partner. You're all exceptionally deserving candidates. Um, I can honestly say I was as happy to hear the news of your promotions as I was when I was promoted to, to partner. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal and I offer you my warmest congratulations. I think it's a fantastic thing and I hope we see many more promotions to come. I also just want to thank and acknowledge the support of the Pro Bono Institute of Trust Law the Thomson Reuters Foundation and the Australian Pro Bono Centre, uh, who uh, all uh, have contributed to the report on the nature and prevalence of pro bono partner roles globally. Um, I think um, it's clear that report is, is still uh, a relevant and important resource for people who are seeking promotion to partner or for law firm managers who are contemplating appointing a pro bono partner it's a it's a really great source of information and we'll include a link to it uh in the description with the podcast um so thank you to all of you again it's been a great conversation i really appreciate you taking the time it's been a real pleasure nick and thank you to you dla and particularly to you for the solidarity and sense of purpose that you've given us over these many years and that's been incredibly important to have that that outer um, group of people who who support all of the pro bono movement in such a fundamentally um, dynamic way it's been brilliant thank you oh, thank you Yasmin. it's great to be part of the a very collegiate uh, pro bono community it's wonderful so thank you okay that's a wrap thank you